Welcome to Tilly's Trans Tuesdays. Over the course of 2023, I tracked every movie and TV show I watched to bring you Tilly's 2023 Trans Rep in Media. We'll discuss where trans people or issues appeared, under what context, and hopefully get a picture of how things are going. I'm Tilly Bridges, your host, and I'm joined by my writing partner, my best friend, my wife, our token cis representation, the leading lady in the movie of my life, Susan Bridges. Am I, though? Yes? No. I'm one. I'm an advisor in the wings sort of person. You, you don't give yourself enough credit. Well, that could be. That's the story of your life. Okay. That's very nice, though. You're nice. I need, well, I try to be. Our guest this week is critic and journalist Maureen Mo Ryan, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair who has written for Entertainment Weekly, The New York Times, EW, Salon, GQ, and Vulture. Prior to joining Vanity Fair, she worked as a television critic at Variety, Huffington Post, and the Chicago Tribune. In addition to criticism, opinion pieces, and feature stories about the entertainment industry, she has spent much of the last decade writing in-depth pieces on matters of inclusion, misconduct, and abuse in Hollywood and on efforts to make the industry better on a variety of fronts. Her first book, Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood, is a deeper exploration of these issues and was released last June. Welcome, Mo. Hello. No, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. It's so nice to have you. You're kind of a big deal, it seems. (laughs) If people knew how much of my life revolved around cleaning up cat vomit, they would say, yeah, that's probably what you know, Angelina <laughs> Jolie is doing all day. Um, yeah. Yes, I'm a big deal. That's that's my way of proving to you that, yes, only the big shots do this much cleaning and sweeping. And yet the pet, the pets can be a humbling factor. Yeah, they really are. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I just sit in my house in the Midwest and I, I either get excited about things and I'm like, I want to write about this or I get real mad about things. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to write about this. That you know what both That's of those are very similar to to the Trans Tuesdays, <laughs> right? That is true. Yeah, you have that in common. We do. Okay, so I want to talk a bit about Burn It Down and how important and extraordinary it is, but I think we'll save that for the next episode. Because this show has an audience that's a little bit more outside the entertainment industry than the three of us talking today are. So I wanted to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better first. So how did you get into entertainment reporting? Well, I always just loved it. I mean, just before we began recording, I was talking about how I began watching Doctor Who when I was 10. And, you know, I loved stories. I loved storytelling. I loved wondering about how they worked. You know, I mean, my favorite thing is to immerse myself in a world. And that could be a Kate Bush album or 
a TV show. I want to fall in love with the world. I want to be immersed in the world. Even if I'm in love with the world and the people in it, sometimes I get mad because I'm like, well, they, they shouldn't have done that or they should. Do, you know what I mean? So I'm just, yeah, yeah. I'm just interested in these topics of popular culture and music as well. I actually, far before dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was a music critic for a long time. I had my own zine. Kids, oh, wow. ask your parents what a zine was. Um, <laughs> are zines right for you? Probably not. It's funny because one time a, a big time music producer accused me of profiting in a particular way off my zine. And I'm like, yes, please come on down and look at my overdrawn credit card. <laughs> it's not, I don't yeah, big money is not, not what the zine scene anything. is known for. No. Not at all. It's no. not. So I always just loved creative art you know, myself creating things or thinking about and talking about creative things. And it's interesting because I'm going to make an overgeneralization about TV critics in the before times, like meaning like before the internet then, arose sure. and many of us with it kind of arose into these critical spaces and roles. It's an overstatement and an overgeneralization to say that I think a lot of people who wrote about TV and at newspapers especially ended up covering TV. I don't think that that was their plan. Sure. And that, that can be a good, I don't know that it was my plan specifically, but it was like, well, Phil's not working out on the sports desk. So what if he just writes about, you know, dumb stuff like television? You know? Right. <laughs> like, it just felt like there was a yeah. fair amount of that. And then, you know, again, to oversimplify, but, you know, many of us who ended up rising to, I guess, a certain level of prominence in film and television coverage came of age in the age of the internet. You know, I was on AOL message boards talking about both music and film and TV, you know, in the yeah. mid nineties, you know, so a lot of us came of age in that world where, you know, and a lot of us flocked to certain sites or to certain tumblers or whatever it was because they, took it seriously like the baseline was this is an interesting art form and we yeah. should talk about what it's doing well what it's not doing well what we love what we don't love why don't we love it you know yeah. so the baseline very much changed I feel like in the aughts and beyond from I mean I, I I can give you chapter and verse examples when I was at the Chicago Tribune where I worked for 13 years and I wasn't the tv critic the whole time I did a lot of different things but I ended up being the tv critic there You'd have to fight to get something, even on the front page of the entertainment section. To get yeah. to, you might be able to do a, a Sunday arts feature, you know, again, with a lot of persuasion, unless it was The Sopranos. And back then, you know what The Sopranos said when, the, when HBO said when the Chicago Tribune came calling and wanted to talk to David Chase? <laughs> they didn't even respond to our email. Like, we were no, <laughs> like, I was nobody. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, in, in fairness, many, many people over the years have given me of their time, including people at HBO, PR and showrunners. So but that was when, you know, HBO was at a tight and like nobody else. If you weren't the New York Times, you were nobody. Yeah. But even within the, a lot of these sort of like old line media companies, you had to fight for, you know, popular culture to rate the coverage that like a very minute thing happening in the UK parliament would get. Do you know what I mean? Like if, yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. If Queen Elizabeth II tripped and fell, that was a bigger story for five days than, yeah. you know, yeah. the, 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 the finale of The Sopranos even. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point, though, that you made about, like, people maybe just ending up as TV critics because 
it even permeates a little bit now where people don't there are still people who don't necessarily regard it as like a legitimate art form you know where they're like oh, i don't yeah. even have a tv there's there's tvs not worth watching or you know your brain's rotting because you're watching too much tv and it's like it depends mm-hmm. on what you watch and you know there's so much really rich beautiful scripted art out there in television and movies yeah. that you know can make such a difference in the world and I can't believe that there are still people who think it's just, you know, junk entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the progression that I went through, I think I even have said this on Blue Sky or wherever we're congregating, but it's, you know, not as full of Nazis. (laughs) So, you know, the thing that, you know, people, I'd be at a party. What do you do? I'm a TV critic. Oh, I don't even own a TV. It's like, yeah, it's like kind of like, oh, I, you know, I'm a winemaker. Oh, wine is terrible and only creates alcoholics. Oh, cool. Great story. I'm going to, you know, smash this right into your face. I would yeah. not do that, of course. But, you know, people, it was, I don't own a TV. And then it was, I don't watch reality TV. That was very big in the early aughts when like Survivor yeah, yeah. was big in America. Oh, okay. So you don't watch reality TV. Who are the 30 million people <laughs> watching Survivor then? Like, I don't know. You're not one of them. Congrats. Um, and now you, you really don't get that as much. Yeah. But, you know, so that was a big thing to fight for. And I think a lot of that fight was was successful, really. And then, you know, they had, you know, the whole thing is TV better than film. And I'm like, they can be different. Can we have different things that are good? Right. For and the yeah. weird thing is, I know a lot of people, a lot of critics in both worlds. And we never really had that beef. It was more like an ex, like, oh, are they feuding? I'm like, we are not feuding. We're too tired. There's too much to watch. Yeah. But but the weird thing is, I think we're now under siege from, you know, the business world, you know? I mean, the thing is, like, yeah. I think television absolutely proved that it is as much of a moneymaker and as important culturally as film or as video games or as anything, you know? And again, yeah. we don't have to fight. We can like all these things. But now now the attack is coming from a different direction. Is like, well, should it exist? Should should humans write it? I don't know. Maybe not. Right. You know. Sh- yeah. yeah. Oh so that feels. I like do the feel like now. there's more internal crushing of television. Also. Yeah, from the as from the, yeah. the, uh, the, the tech the bros. Call, and the, yeah, the call is yeah. coming from inside the house, and David uh-huh. Zaslav is making that call. So yeah. no, totally. I okay. Don't get me started on Zaslav. No. no, I know that's. <laughs> I I have to say. I'm one of the people who's been pointing out since 2021 online repeatedly in one year, his compensation was almost quarter of a billion dollars. And I'm That's like, so I would have destroyed ludicrous. Warner Brothers Discovery for a flat hundred million. What a savings, right? Like you could have gotten me to do that for so like barely 40%. So yeah, it's bad. I mean, I think, and I think, you know, it's easy to talk about terrible execs. I, you know, the executives I know are, you know, fired or let go or laid yeah. off or terrified of those things because they also like to eat food and have a place to live, you know? Right. But I think the, I think a lot of the executives in the trenches not only love television and, you know, film. I mean, obviously, I'm more television versed. They love these things. They also feel that they're under siege. I can feel, pe- I can, over, over time, I've, almost felt like I could hear the people at, you know, HBO or Warner Brothers, like rolling their eyes at like things that the Zaz would do, because I don't think they agreed. I, I mean, the whole, the, the strike yeah. was, I think what I've been part of, and a lot of journalists and critics have been part of the last, I mean, you could date it from me too. You could date it from before that we could go around on dates, but I call it the great demystification. 
And the great demystification is, is it glamorous to work in Hollywood? Yeah, like one night a year when you go to your show's premiere and there's free food. Yes, one, you know, one night, one week a year when I go to the TCA, you know, convention and I get, wow, you know, Fox gave us hoodies. This is right. I'm wearing a Fox hoodie right now from Enlisted, a wonderful show. So it's not glamorous and it's a grind and it's very hard and it's very precarious and it's getting worse. And as you say, Susan, I think, I mean, it's internal and external because it's, you know, well, well, what is the private equity firm want us to do? What does Wall Street want us to do? What does the bank want us to do? And it's these kind of, you know, economic forces that are crunching the industry into shapes that are squeezing a lot of people out. And, you know, we're not going to solve it on one podcast, but this has been happening over and over and over again in the history of Hollywood. It's a hundred years of this. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that if you read my work and especially the work I've done around, you know, misconduct, lack of inclusion, all these things, I, I keep, I've kept coming at these things for 20 years because it does the industry. There's always, a mul- multiple directions from which the backsliding factors are trying to yeah. get in. Yeah, yeah. And so you can't just say, well, we fixed it. We didn't fix it because now, you know, oh, we have peak TV. Right. But like I just read a stat the other day that the number of shows went from 630 something in that realm to around 400. So, okay, if people didn't have precarious lives before because now all these season orders are much shorter than they used to be for the most part there's a you know 34 percent less jobs and and like and that's not just the writers and directors and producers it's you know the camera operator and the craft service and all that so everyone you know if you read like a sort of more business-minded coverage it's like oh it's that it's enduring a correction a correction for whom whose wages are being so-called corrected yeah income is being downsized yeah i ran into that a bit with stuff during the strike there would be people who'd be like well why why the heck are writers and actors striking you're all so filthy rich and like they didn't know how mm-hmm. the like 95 percent of hollywood is working class people who live paycheck to paycheck i asked really is the money credit for that because yeah really got the message out in some really good ways yeah yeah absolutely and social media has changed that i have to say yeah. you know I said this many times online and in various things. I covered the 2007-2008 Writers Guild strike, and I've been around for other guild strikes and near strikes. What you just said, Tilly, the whole like, well, why aren't they just polishing their Lamborghinis? They're all rich. (laughs) Exactly. You encountered that a lot more in, you know, 15, 16 years ago, even 10 years ago than you do now. And that's, again, part of social media has many ills one of the non-ills is that it has allowed people to tell their own stories and this great deglamorization has, has yeah. just sunk in for people that yeah you know i always say if you're doing well in los angeles and again the first time i set foot on a lot in vancouver or la was 30 years ago you know so like i've seen like i, I feel like i know what i'm talking about doing well in the industry for most people is like having a paid off car that runs. Yep. Having enough money in the bank for maybe a four month dry spell. And I'm and, and what really 
there were many factors that went into the writing of Burn It Down. One of them was people who you would have thought are established, they're EPs, they've got, they were a showrunner once, or they're a co-showrunner, you know, like people who you would think, oh, well, they're set for sure. I mean, the, the amount of precariousness in the industry has, it, it exists for everyone. Like we've all seen the executive shuffles where somebody's out on their ear, but the difference there, of course, is that they have a golden <laughs> parachute that, you know, yeah. they're not going to start. But a lot of people I knew that, you know, had resumes that you'd be like, whoa, these people are, are really established, respected, well-liked industry veterans. They were also struggling. They yeah. were selling their houses and moving elsewhere. Like th this is, and again, I'm not saying, oh my gosh, feel sorry for the poor, you know, whatever people who used to own houses in Santa Monica or whatever, you know, like, I'm not saying that I'm saying It'll, it alarms me, it alarmed me and still alarms me that an industry that states that it wants to tell all kinds of stories and reflect our world become more and more precarious, either for the people who want to do that and come from all different kinds of communities and cultures and worlds and outlooks and have different stories to tell. It's hard for everyone. It's getting harder for everyone and therefore for those who do not have the what I, I like to I like to use the word insulation. I think yeah. sometimes people just lose their minds when they hear the word privilege and that can work. Sometimes words get worn out to the point where I'm like, are we all agreeing? I mean, what words do mean things, yes, but like yeah. what does that even mean to different people? I think of it as insulation. Are you insulated from career blowback if you do this or that? Are you insulated from financial, you know, ruin? if you if this or that happens so no very few people in the industry have true insulation the strike was driven by those people by the way the the, the few that do have yep. that which was very much revealed in how out of touch they were with people who have like literally everyone else and this is something i try to impress upon people as part of my great demystification you know program it seems weird because the perception is that it's crunchy granola and everyone's, you know, as you say, prosperous and we're all just having, you know. Avocado toast every day. Yeah, every day. Most Hollywood ecosystems, and we're talking about whether it's a production company or a studio or a set or whatever it is, there's a very small number of people with actual power and there's everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Very true, you would very not true. believe the number of times I've talked to, you know, again, veteran executives, veteran creative people, and the things that they have been, that have been said to them or done to them. It's like, and they can't, they, you know, part of the reason they come to people like me or reporters and whatnot is because speaking up and speaking out is not a thing that you can do that often. And yeah, and keep your job. You risk your whole career. Yeah. You risk a lot. So so yeah, so I'll do it. I mean, you know, I don't have to do <laughs> I'm glad that you're out there doing it. You're so <laughs> vital and you're so good at it. And I feel yeah, like we could talk dang. about this all day, but we have a topic to get to. So we should let's move on. Get but to a topic. before we do that, let's do that. Where can people find you online after listening if they would like more Mo? More Mo? Who wants that? Oh, wait. The kids all want I it. I do. Kids, kids <laughs> com. Is it no point going to be, you know, bought by a smooth brain tech bro because I own it? So <laughs> <laughs> at least until I can stop making the payments. 
So MoRyan.com is a good hub. Also, I have a link tree, but under the name Maureen Ryan, because I go by Mo and Maureen. So sure. if you look at for a link tree, Maureen Ryan, I am not the documentary filmmaker who made a film called Wisconsin Death Trip, nor am I an elderly woman in Ireland. If you do okay. Google search for good my name, know. you will find a lot of nurses and rowers and Maureen Ryan, the filmmaker, who God bless. I mean, she teaches at Columbia. She's an OG. Good One, for her. Days we have to have a Maureen Ryan convention. I am also on the Blue Sky. I was on, I'm not going to call, I was on Twitter for a long time and get into that. But like, I, I'm not really spending time. Yeah. There. Instagram stories or Instagram is where I'm at kind of more frequently as well. So that's more Ryan 66. Excellent. Everybody go follow her right now if you don't already. Mm-hmm. Be prepared for all of my spicy takes. <laughs> I am always They're having great spicy, spicy takes, though. I love that spice. 7 p.m., Mo gets a little bit bored with the boring winter day and is like, okay, yeah, how about that? Or I'm excited about something. And I'm like, yay, this is coming back. Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. So at the end, I will be comparing all of the rep that I saw in 2023 to trans rep in 2022. So you might want to first mm-hmm. check out the 2022 trans rep in media to see how things were last year, what was good and what was entirely off the rails. And that was episode three of this show. Also, I want you to please understand what an undertaking it is to take notes on every single thing I watch for a year, now for two years running. It's a ton of work and it means I can't ever just brush off the transphobia that I see. But if I don't do this, people don't know. Even trans people can miss transphobic jokes if they're not always looking for them. So if I don't point them out, if it doesn't get talked about, nothing ever gets better. But I also want to call out media that gets it right, that is wonderful and so very badly needed trans representation. We need to celebrate the good too, especially in this heavily anti-trans climate that we find ourselves in. As with last year, this will not cover all movies and TV shows released in 2023. There is no way for me to watch everything that's released. It's just not possible. And in our present flood of media, we might not even hear about something until a year or more after it comes out. So this is a representation of things I watched in 2023, but that were released recently within the past couple of years. But Susan and I watch a lot. We're screenwriters. That's part of the job. We do watch a ridiculous so much. (laughs) So what you're getting is one trans woman screenwriter's experience watching the mediums she loves most for an entire year and what was great and what was awful and just how often there was absolutely nothing at all for me to report on. I'm including the titles of everything we watched and how many trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming people appeared in them. And I'm going to include titles even when no trans people appeared because that's still remarkably the norm. I tried my best to catch all the trans people but may have missed some because not every trans person knows every other trans person. Huge if true. And also because sometimes it's not mentioned that a character is trans at all. In fact, I missed a couple last year and had to add them in after the fact. Did you know the MCU had a trans person in it? I bet you didn't. Patty Harrison is in an episode of She-Hulk playing a bride, and she has actual lines. But nothing in the episode mentions that she's trans. So I, a trans woman, did not know or even suspect I was seeing someone like me for the first time in a gigantic media franchise that's dominated the cultural landscape for the past decade. Also, after the 2022 Trans Rep in Media Trans Tuesday, I learned that Janelle Monet was non-binary, which meant that even though they were playing a cis woman character in Glass Onion, it was at least representation in terms of actors. I discussed this in the 2022 write-up, but it bears repeating. If you do not say or unquestionably visibly convey a character as trans, nobody will know, not even other trans people. 
And then we don't know that we got to exist in those worlds and be part of those stories. And cis people don't get to see and experience us just being a normal part of the world our stories inhabit like we should be. And we shouldn't have to do that. In an ideal world, there'd be a fair amount of trans rep in our media, and we'd see it so often that it wouldn't matter if a character's transness was mentioned or not. But sadly, we do not live in that world. I mean, we hope we will. We Eventually. hope we fight for it. And it would be great if they were just there. And it's fine. Everything yeah. is fine. Yes. Because weirdly, trans people are just here, and they're fine. Everything is We've fine. We've always been here. Oh, so strange. Well, until we live in that world, seeing trans people on screen and as parts of our most popular mediums and art forms is vital to the acceptance we so badly need in this society. If we can see it, we can be it. It lets us know we belong and it's okay to be us. And now you see why bigots fight so hard against it, why cis people gatekeep trans stories and trans creatives out of so much of our media. It's the same reason you see so little representation for every other marginalized community too. Of course, not all of it is active bigotry, but the way the entertainment industry is structured, the easiest way is in is by having a connection to those who are already in largely cishet white people, or being able to be an assistant for next to no pay and often horrible conditions. And who are the people who can afford to do that? Largely wealthy, especially compared to many marginalized people, cishet white people, or as Mo would say, those who are insulated. So the system is self-perpetuating because less marginalized people get into positions of power where they can help other marginalized people get jobs and tell our stories. And when we don't, when we appear in media we didn't get to help create, it can often be harmful in so many ways. If you need a refresher on the perils of bad representation and the harm it can do, there's a Trans Tuesday on that at Lovecraft Country at TillysTransTuesdays.com. And if you need a refresher on the importance of good representation and the joy it can bring and the good it can do, there's a Trans Tuesday on that, too, and Cyberpunk 2077, also at the website. Okay, a reminder. Whether or not a trans person appeared in something does not indicate quality or whether I enjoyed it. I really liked lots of things that had zero trans people in them. But it does remain difficult to love something and then wonder why there was no place in it for you. Also, a reminder that COVID is still real and still a thing, and my lovely wife and co-host is immunocompromised, so we cannot go to theaters. So anything that hasn't hit streaming or Blu-ray yet, we have no way to see. Also, caution. To talk about this, there have to be spoilers by necessity. Okay, so Mo, before I dive into my big list and discussion on the representation that I saw or didn't see in movies, was there any trans rep that you saw in movies recently that stood out to you? Maybe good or bad? Or any? Any at all? I Yeah, well, that's the thing. I don't see a lot of movies in theaters just as a like I, I think that was kind of not a huge part of my life before COVID and certainly since COVID that yeah you know, so I probably of the movies that you talked or you know wrote about are like obviously we could do a whole whole podcast on Barbie and I think yeah. that Barbie there's much to celebrate, but it's also very indicative of the industry status quo, which is there's trans representation in it, but it's not the point of it. And I don't know how many people who are trans worked on that film. And, and for all I know, it might be a lot. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But a question I, so I, I don't think I probably am going to have much to add in terms, I mean, you know, in terms of like what? will we watch i mean i'm 
I am not a full-time on-staff critic anymore for television, so I'm actually going back and watching a lot of movies I've never seen before. Sure. And obviously, and some a lot of them are from the '90s or the aughts and whatnot. And, and like the trans rep is, is like it's just a desert for like, is there a oh, woman yeah. who doesn't die? Is there a thin white woman, cis white woman who doesn't die to motivate a man? If not, what are we even doing here? You know, just <laughs> that's yeah. what it was. So I grew up with. So I don't have a lot to add about that, but I would just want to zero in on something that you said as you were, you know, leading into this part of the conversation, and that is, where are the trans executives? Because if yep. you know of any, I don't. And again, I, I it's don't. Sort of like you're saying, I don't. I even I don't know everyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Especially yeah. my contacts within the film world, and as you know, like people move amongst, you know, film. Yeah. television, you know, they move into different worlds in part because creative people sure. have to have a lot of plates spinning to even make a living anymore. But I feel like I've met over the past 30 years, a lot of executives or seen them on stages or moderated discussions or, you know what I mean? Like I've been, yeah, yeah. I go to New York and LA a lot and I mix a lot with the world that we're talking about, like the, the, the people who make the stuff we're talking about. If I have met a trans executive, I'm not aware of it. And if it's possible, I've met people who are not out, and that's fine. Right. It's not for me to say. But again, like, and and, and my my corollary to that would be, if a trans person makes it to, um, you know, sticks it out in the industry and is, is an executive, what do they have to do and conform to in order to be accepted? Yeah. And this is a big thing with Hollywood, which is, you know, for decades of my career, and it's certainly some places it's still this way, well, we have one of each. Oh, okay, d- what? <laughs> so it's like the, the isolated pocket of, and we see this on TV, it's like, oh, here's a lesbian. She does not know any other lesbians. Okay, yep. moving on though, because she only has two scenes anyway, so like, it's fine. But we had a, we had one of those. It's like, okay, but right, but like people live in communities? I don't know, it's weird to me. Yeah, it is. So uh, I would bet, I'm sure there are trans executives in the industry. I mean, I certainly know that there are many, many trans creative people, but to feel isolated is not rare. Yeah. And to feel, and so you add that to the, to what I outlined in my book in, in, you know, which is that for a long time, the baseline of so-called creativity or, you know, the Hollywood way was at best indifference to someone's history and humanity and at worst, active sadistically abusive environments like actively horrible environments so so i think if you walk into any cocktail party in hollywood they're policed and what i mean by that is people there are cisgender people there are usually majority white yes thin can their bodies look a conventional way for the most part or what is considered conventionally acceptable. Right. And, you know, yes, will you maybe mix at that party? And it depends on the party. It depends on the event. It depends on the award ceremony or whatever. Yes, of course, you will in, perhaps talk to gender nonconforming people, non-binary people, trans people, but you better be wearing a slim and expensive outfit. You know what I mean? Or look a yeah. certain kind of nonconforming. So, I mean, just generally speaking, the commercial entertainment industry, film and television especially, I guess what we would sort of call Hollywood, it's a scary place 
for everyone, I think, often. It's a precarious place for many people, often, not always, but often. And on top of that, if you are trans and you're living in this world, you're already under an enormous amount of stress from the anti-trans nature of the world that we're living in. Can and confirm. so add to that, the competitive <laughs> nature of the industry and the constant sort of like policing of class and appearance and behavior and you know what I mean? Like all these yeah. different things. So I guess that's my long way of saying, okay, great. This studio has a trans executive and they're in the meeting, the big meeting. Are we going to green light this movie? Well, if there's, you know, 16 people in that meeting, what is that trans person who had to risk a lot just to get into that room? How hard are they going to fight if it looks like the mood of the room is like, I don't know, this this story about this trans character is, I don't, it, wait, a rom-com? That doesn't sound right. Can't it be about suffering? You know? <laughs> <laughs> How hard are they going to be able to fight to be like, like it's, it's risky to speak up in Hollywood in a lot yeah. of different worlds and venues and situations. But honestly, that's where I've kind of landed in terms of me being someone who writes about the industry. You know, if, I, if I'm honest with you, what I don't want to do a lot anymore is like, here's the story of how this one person got away with a reign of terror. Yeah. That story I've been telling for a long time, and a lot of people have been telling that story, and I've yeah. written a book about that story, and, you know, but the book is about trying to, like, it's the enabling. Yep. So it makes me happy when I know that there are not only trans people non-binary people queer people in a creative endeavor but they're listened to they're yeah. compensated well their voices are heard they're not punished for stating their creative views and put, giving their input yeah that's not a world we live in yet no it's not marginalized communities in hollywood it's just not and so I, I really enjoyed Barbie a lot, and I just am glad that there was trans representation in the film, uh, trans and queer representation, I should say, because, you know, I think, but but again, like, if, if I were to teach a storytelling class or even a criticism class, I would just walk in and write this on the board. Who is the story about? Whose yep. hopes and dreams do we know about? And right now and for a long time and again you know i there are exceptions to this but it w was like there is trans representation but it is not the point yeah it's not the focus yeah. and we will definitely see that pop up in some of the stuff i'm going to talk about so yeah. yeah so we're far from where it needs to be and what i don't want to do is give people cookies for doing less than the minimum yeah, you know? absolutely. All right, so let's get into my list of movies here. We're going to start with 65, which had zero. Then there's Banshees of Inishirin, which had zero. And then Barbie, which we just talked about a little, which had one. Trans woman Hari Neff plays Dr. Barbie, although she's not mentioned as trans in dialogue. No other characters' identities are either, really. But again, if you don't say it, how many people aren't going to know and thus miss that representation? How many of you listening watched and had no idea there was a trans woman in that movie? 
And so do we count that as trans representation? In terms of actors, yes, absolutely. I saw a trans woman on screen and it was fabulous. But trans people can play cis characters and nothing marks the character as trans, so largely most of the cis people who saw the movie had no idea they were seeing a trans Barbie, which would have been truly remarkable. And maybe a lot of cis people don't know that sometimes trans people do play cis characters and they don't know it either. Yeah. But anyway, the whole movie itself is kind of a big trans allegory, but in a way you probably wouldn't think. And I'm going to do a Trans Tuesday about that in the future, so stay tuned. That brings us to Bottoms, which had zero. However, this was one of my favorite movies of the year. It was a lesbian teen sex comedy, and it made me feel seen in ways that I haven't before. But there are no trans people. There's a couple of jokes, though. There's one joke where a girl is talking about a guy and mentions his quote-unquote male penis which is only funny if you think there can't be any other kind. Spoiler, there can. There are also female penises and non-binary penises. And there's another scene where the head jock football quarterback is dancing in his room to Total Eclipse of the Heart, which again is played for laughs, but is only funny if you think a boy dancing to a love song is something he shouldn't be doing. Confess Fletch. Zero. Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Zero. I really love that movie too, though. It's really fun. But there was some LGBT rep. Yes. I did I did see that movie and I enjoyed it, but yeah. Yeah. I was just so excited that I'd seen something that you <laughs> Oh yeah. Okay. Elemental one. This one is complicated. There is apparently a non binary character among Wade's water family, played by non binary actor Ava Kai Hauser. But I say apparently because I missed it entirely and after watching remembered I'd heard that there was some representation and thought I missed it. And sure enough I did. The character has only a handful of lines and since everyone is calling this the first actual non-binary rep in a Pixar film, I must have missed the they-them pronouns. But if a trans person actively looking for the trans rep still misses it, what does that tell you about how effective that representation was? And I want you to realize, even if I had picked up on it, the character is of literally no consequence. If you removed them from the movie, it would not have a single drop of difference. It's well beyond time we got more than four lines and were actual characters and not set dressing. I'm in the animation guild, and through that I was able to see the elemental script. Now I don't know which version of the script this was, because scripts go through so many drafts and revisions, and where it starts may barely resemble where it ends up. And things also get changed on set during filming or for animated films during recording. And storyboarding and blah, blah, blah. Right, and then they may change again further during editing. So this isn't fully determinative. But in the script I read, Wade has brothers and sisters but no non-binary sibling. There are no they-them pronouns used. The role may have been changed to suit the actor, which is great. But though his siblings have names, Ava Kai Hauser is only credited on IMDb as, quote, additional voices which seems unfortunate given they voiced a character with an actual name, incredibly small though it may have been. And yet how sad is it this still somehow feels like a little bit of progress. Enola Holmes 2. Zero. At one point, Enola swaps clothes with a boy to elude the police, and there's a shot of the boy in her dress smiling like he super likes it. The moment is played for laughs, and again we're shown that someone perceived as a boy doing anything perceived for girls is worthy of ridicule. I'm very tired of this happens all the time. The Flash 1. Ezra Miller is non-binary, though they're playing a cis man, so this counts as actor rep but not character rep. But Ezra is an abuser and a trash person, so it's a definite mixed bag at best. And Oops. that's all we need to say about that. That's all we need to say about that. Ghosted 0. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 0. 
Haunted Mansion, zero. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, zero. Joyride, one. Okay, this one, I'm so happy we get to talk about something good. Deadeye is a character nicknamed that due to their dead eyes. And like, have you seen a pre-transition photo of trans people? We've got those. One of the most beautiful and heartwarming things about transition timelines is watching our eyes come alive. Suddenly there's joy and happiness and life. Deadeye was not named that by mistake. They introduce themselves with their quote-unquote legal name and then say to call them Deadeye. How much clearer could that be? Multiple times through the movie, Deadeye mimes having a penis, and it's played for laughs but not by the movie so much as by Deadeye themselves. In the way of haha, wouldn't it be funny if I had different genitalia in a safe, joking way trans people can dance around our truth? They have a line later on where they say, I'm not like the rest of my family and their family says they should smile more, which you can see as sexism, or as because pre-transition trans people rarely smile, and when we did it was always kind of hollow. In the final scene, Deadeye's hair and clothes have become perhaps more masculine, and they-them pronouns are used for them in the final scene, and they're played by non-binary actor Sabrina Wu. It was written and directed by cis people, but the story wasn't appropriating anything. It wasn't about Deadeye being trans or non-binary. Their transition was just something that happened over the course of the story. It was pretty great representation all around, I think. The Little Mermaid live action, zero. However, The Little Mermaid remains a huge trans allegory, including the part of your world song and the fact that Hans Christian Andersen may have been trans. I plan to dive into his published letters at some point to see for myself what clues may be there. Until then, you can see the Trans Tuesday on the maybe intentional trans allegory of the Little Mermaid's part of your world, and more discussion on Hans Christian Andersen's possible transness and how difficult it can be to spot trans people from the past, even though we have always existed, in the Trans Tuesday on trans people in history. The Menu, Zero. That movie blew my mind. Was that still this year? We saw it this year. I think it came out like a year good or two ago. God. Yeah. I liked it. It's good. It's really good. It, it'll freak you out, though. Watch out. Okay. I definitely saw people on The Bad Place making fun of people for liking the menu. And I was just like, really? Just Wow. How about you okay. just let people like things? All right. Quite. Okay. All right. So here's a really important one to talk about. Monica. One but the movie is all about her. Trans woman Trace Lissette stars in this movie about a trans woman going home to help take care of her mother with dementia, who may not even realize that her daughter is her child as she's not seen her since she kicked her out when she came out as trans. This movie showed me several things I've never seen in a movie before, namely a trans woman having to deal with chasers. See the Trans Tuesday on chasers and the fetishization of trans women for more on that. The moment in the movie that floored me is when, emotionally distraught and fed up, Monica unmodulates her voice as she yells in frustration. For those not aware, a trans woman who does gender-affirming voice therapy, one of the hardest things to do can be to maintain it when we get really emotional, because you're just reacting and not thinking about how you sound. That moment was really powerful to me. If you want more on exactly what gender-affirming voice therapy is like, there's a three-part Trans Tuesday on trans voices that were episode 45 to 47 of this show. Also, sometimes when I'm stressed out, my Chicago accent comes out. That's true, it does. <laughs> and I have, out of my entire family, I have the strongest one. You do. And I don't know why that happened. Yeah. But that's fascinating, yes. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. I'm conflicted about this movie, though, as it was written and directed by a seemingly cis man. 
But this is a very, very trans story, the kind that should only be told by trans people and not appropriated by cis folks. Please see the Trans Tuesday on trans rules and stories and who gets to play them and tell them for more on that, which was episode four of this podcast. The director said he worked with Trace Lissette through every step of the process, which is great. But listen, if you're a cis person who thinks there's an important trans story that needs to be told and you can help make that happen, great. But you need to empower trans people to tell that story. He could have brought Trace on as a co-writer or co-director, but he didn't. Her only credit is in acting. Now, it's also possible the director may be trans and not out or not know it yet, but it appears to be a cis man telling an inherently trans story, and that makes me uncomfortable, and so my feelings on it are really, really complicated. And really, I mean, the state of the industry, how it is now, and we're even starting to get these kinds of, you know, experiences where, yeah. like, they want us to consult on something trans-related, mm -hmm. and then they decide not to do it, or they yeah. don't want to listen right or Dude, like... if i had a dollar for every time well wh how is uh the what this is a different arena but i bet it, i think it relates there's something in hollywood that i call like let's say that now they've flown to this new planet and it's an asian inspired planet and it's like oh okay so they're wearing garb from like the 18th century japan the writing on the walls is korean like you know what I mean like I I, I yeah. call it you know like sort of like pottery barn Asian like it's like whatever <laughs> is just decorative you know it's yep very like yeah so I I'm I just hear about this so much where you know I even have a quote from someone in the book a woman a professor activist and advisor consultant and, and like she's like oh you finally figure out they just want you to tell them what will get people what will people get mad about online and will will it be enough mad that it will hurt the movie's rollout? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's like absolutely. Just tell us, tell it. We've already made our decision. We're not really going to listen to what creative input you have. Maybe we'll change something if it will make social media like catch on fire. Because like you know what I mean? Like it's they yeah. just they don't actually want creative input. They want you to tell them where the where the decisions they've already made and will continue to probably defend are going to be essentially like landmark landmines when the film gets rolled out or the TV show gets rolled out. Yeah, now, or... There are play situations where that doesn't happen and they actually listen. But again, a thing I, I write about a lot is, and I thought it was interesting to, I thought it was important to include this in my book. There was a black woman who talked about writing for a showrunner. She pushed back on an element of race in a script. And then it didn't get changed. Yeah. And then the showrunner was like, well, why didn't you push back more? Whereas from her perspective, she had already pushed back probably more than she thought was uh -huh. good for her yep. career. Do you know what I mean? So often people are like, well, why didn't people say blah, blah, blah? Because it's risky to say anything. Like, yeah. you know, anything at all yeah. to get you into career jail in Hollywood including like yep. bringing someone the wrong coffee, you know, like that's like, it's the most minor things can get you put into career jail. And so I have a lot of questions about, as you do about how many opportunities, not only where are the trans executives, but I mean, I feel like what if a trans person had directed this? Do they right. not? They, there are so many incredible trans directors, right? Like there are, there so are. Many. 
incredible screenwriters and i'm just like well we had to blah 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 i'm going to bring up a book maybe i think it's maybe more for the tv conversation but i really 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 love the Murderbot series of books and novellas yeah all these using the strong feelings about this too i do thank you i love it so i have always had a lot of thoughts about i've reread all of those books some of them like four and five times I find that the allegories within that about just being an outsider, about gender, about exploitation, but it's so funny. It's so entertaining. I could talk about it all day long. So guess what? There's going to be a murder bot. I I thought this would be an incredible opportunity for a non-binary actor, first of all. And secretly, I really wanted Vico Ortiz. (laughs) That's my dream casting, you know, like your wish casting in your head. And so a murder bot adaptation was announced. And just, I want to say this, probably Martha Wells doesn't care what I think. She should just go off and be Martha Wells and be amazing. How things are adapted and who adapts them and what, what the decisions are at the studio level. That's not something of, of, like an author of fiction. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of they control don't get any say over that. No. But it's, you know, cis white men are the executive producers and adapters and a cis white actor is the lead character, male actor. Yeah. And I'm like, Mo made a, a very like a womp womp face, you know. It's just like I was really like, upset. I was really upset, and it were okay, thank you for validating for me. I feel you were seen. mad for days. I was trying. I, yeah, you know, you can only say so many things on social media, or yeah, yeah, career jail. But yeah, I was really upset. I I agree, and to me that speaks to the environment that we're in. I'm like Tilly. Just I want to interject. I learned so much from you. Like, Aw, thank you. Let's just hype your book. The Matrix, like the, the trans allegories of the Matrix is just the allegorical nature of the Matrix. Yeah. My favorite writers teach me how to see the world in a different way. And you've definitely done that. So like the silo, I didn't, I watched Silo and then I read your, I, I can't, was it right? Was I doing both concurrently? I think I read your Silo analysis after I watched Silo and I was like, oh yeah. So sometimes I feel like I'm late to the party of like, oh, damn, that's correct, Silo. I'm definitely doing that. I wasn't, I don't think I was late to the party with a different show we'll get to later. Yeah, yeah. By Samurai. But, but, but the thing is, I wasn't late to the party with Murderbot. Like, I'm like, this yeah. is a gold mine. This is a gold mine because it's about identity. Yeah. This is a, this is a, this is a living entity person who is built from parts. And we write so much about identity, too. That's like our whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. There are so many cool people working in the realm of fiction. You know, Anne Leckie, Becky Chambers, Annalena Witts, Charlie Jane Anders, like Monica Byrne, the actual star is an amazing novel for this. A lot of these reasons we're talking about. There are so many interesting writers in many realms exploring, especially in in sort of sci-fi and uh, fantasy, where it's like gender can be a lot of things. You know, I'm doing a Ursula K. Le Guin reread, you know. So I think it's such a fruitful, interesting area for storytelling. And then when it comes to adapting those works, who gets the call? Just curious. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's rough. This person every time. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, you know, I mean, going back like to Monica, I am really glad that this movie exists. It did things I've never seen. It gets a really yeah. important trans story out there, but it's so complicated because that the director could have brought her on as a co-writer or a coder you know to help her tell and this is a trans story yeah and cis people have no business saying that so i'm glad it's there but it's just 
It's I mean, I feel also all weird about I'll it. Say a hopeful thing, which I never do. I, okay, but like <laughs> in the things that we've been working on, like the bigger the organization, it feels like the harder it is because you're sure to Order. get. There's more executives to get right, it and we have been in some situations where it's like we have a lot of people who want to tell LGBT stories. We want and then it starts going up the ladder and then it just gets picked Thank away you. and yep. picked away and picked yep. away and picked away. And this is a huge thing that I've, it's gotten worse on that front because one of the things I say, and this has nothing to do with trans issues per se, but I do think it's relevant. Don Ryan walks into FX. I have this idea for a show called The Shield. I believe what he originally gave them was like a treatment or like the first 10 pages or something. At that time, Sean Ryan had written on Nash Bridges and had been a staff writer on Angel. Now to get something made, film or TV, you have to, it has to be IP probably. Yeah. You have to have a pod. You have to have a powerful producer, a powerful, yep. like there are some, we've all heard about, and this is again, a little bit inside baseball, but I'll try to make it as relatable as possible. I have heard about well-known, well-respected creators, storytellers, directors, producers, showrunners going out with all of those things, the big entities behind them and a name actor attached and yeah. they still get shot down. Yeah. So I feel like now the, just the array of things, you know, can you just walk in the door as just here, I'm a writer with a script and yes, I have reps, but like, just make this now, if it's a, an original piece and you're not Christopher Nolan, yeah, there's no good way. Good luck. Yeah, it just and that's happen. happening so, in book the book market too. Novels, same thing. And I'm getting really irritated. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Both read a lot. Okay. I think. And so yeah. 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 Okay. But it's okay. Hard. Okay. Okay. Let's get on with that. Keep the. Okay. Move on to my list. Okay. <laughs> this was a great discussion though. Okay. So Morbius. Yes, we watched Morbius. It's a morbid time, but zero. Nimona. One. Okay, this was also one of my favorite movies of the year. Nimona's so good, you guys! Nimona is gender fluid, but also the entire story is very much about being trans and the way the world treats you. But Nimona is played by Chloe Grace Moritz, who is a cis woman, so it's character rep, but not actor rep. The movie's based on a webcomic and graphic novel by N.D. Stevenson, who is trans. N.D. has said, looking back, Nimona was clearly an intentional trans allegory even if he wasn't aware of it at the time. There's a link about it in the show notes. I've mentioned time and again how just because we might not consciously know we're writing about trans themes doesn't mean we're not. We work through all these things subconsciously sometimes, and that makes them no less intentional. At first, I thought I'd have to do a Trans Tuesday about how trans Nimona is, how brilliantly it uses color, how they stunningly use the shape of eyes to convey so much. But then the filmmakers did all that themselves in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, also linked in the show notes. Still, a lot of people have told me that they love for me to do a write-up on it and all the specific ways it speaks to transness. So look for that coming down the road sometime, too. The movie is magnificent, and everyone should see it. It's people, on Netflix. People love to make you work. <laughs> they sure do. Okay. Marcel the Shell with Shoes on. Zero. So cute, though. I loved this movie. Marcel is a shell with shoes and one googly eye, who is yet also explicitly male somehow, despite being voiced by a cis woman. At one point, people see videos of him, and he gets made fun of for having pink shoes, and he says his grandfather had pink shoes. Also a shell. They're all shells. They're all shells. Okay. But again, we see the apparent boy doing anything coded as for girls is worthy of laughter joke, and goodness, it seems to permeate everything. 
I doubt it's even a conscious choice in any of these appearances, it's just that implicit in our society. If you want more on implicit biases and what those are and why we need to root them out and get rid of them, see the Trans Tuesday on Implicit Queerphobia. That brings us to Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Zero. The movie is wonderful, however, and also works remarkably well as a trans allegory, but there's no actual trans rep to be found. Polite Society, Zero. Quantum Mania, Zero. Quiet Place 2, Zero. Shazam, Fury of the Gods, Zero. There's one very cringy bit where the wizard has his head appear on Wonder Woman's body in the middle of someone's dream, and it's played for laughs, and I'm so tired of it. Strange World, Zero, Super Mario Brothers movie, Zero, Tetris, Zero, 3,000 Years of Longing, Zero, Wakanda Forever, Zero, Wolfwalkers, Zero. That's all of the recent movies we saw, and the totals aren't great. Basically, as many jokes about trans people as there were trans people, not all of whom were even mentioned as being trans. Yikes. Thank you for being here, Mo. My pleasure, of course. Dang. Please come back next week as we dive into television I watched in 2023. Don't miss it. Tilly Bridges and Transmission. Tilly's Trans Tuesdays is hosted by Tilly Bridges and Susan Bridges with audio editing and sound mixing by Jillian Morgan. The Google Doc and social media versions of this week's topic and all past topics are available at TillyStransTuesdays.com. Special thanks to Daisy and Jane for the use of Sorry Not Sorry as our show's theme music. Please stop by and show your support at daisyandjane.bandcamp.com and soundcloud.com slash daisyandjane. You can find me at Tilly Bridges on Blue Sky, Twitter, Spoutable, and Hive, on Mastodon at tillybridges at mastodon.social, at facebook.com slash tillysbridges, and on Insta and Threads at heckyeahtillybridges. And you can find Susan on most of those at Susan L. Bridges. You can find Jillian at Audio Jillian on Blue Sky. You can join the Tillyverse Discord server by following the link at the very bottom of TillysTransTuesdays.com. We hold regular watch parties for the Matrix films and other trans movies where I do a live Q&A, and it's blossomed into a wonderfully supportive, compassionate, kind community of friends. We'd love to have you join us. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.